Welcome to this edition of the John Papaloni Show. Today, I'm going to be talking real estate, but I'm not alone. I'm bringing on a guest, Jonathan Nichols. Welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolute pleasure. This is phenomenal. This is an exciting topic. As you know, I'm in the real estate. You're in the real estate. So we're into a real estate conversation, entrepreneurship through real estate. So this is amazing. So why don't we start off the podcast with a little introduction of who you are, how you got there, and why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate the invite. So um, I've, John's already said, my name's Jonathan. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in, in Texas and uh, have been investing in real estate for about four years now, along with my wife. And so my background is, you know, I grew up and went through the normal, you know, education process, went to college, got an engineering degree and worked as a aerospace engineer for about eight years full time um, at a local company here in Dallas. And along that journey, you know, I began to realize as I kind of learned more about myself, more about my skill sets that, you know, one, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and a leader of my own business. Um, and two, just kind of learned along with that, the power of real estate and the ability that it has through investing to, you know, help people generate passive income, create wealth for their family and for their investors. And so um, about four years ago, my wife and I began investing in real estate. We started out very humbly, I would say. Um, we simply house hacked a fourplex um, and renovated it while we were living there. Um, we then decided to convert the units of that four fourplex over to short-term rentals. So like Airbnb and Verbo, um, because we live in a very, in addition to a big city, a very touristy area of the city, um, actually right across the street from where the Dallas Cowboys play, if anyone's a fan. Um, and so we can begin to buy other residential properties in that neighborhood and convert those to short-term rentals. But eventually we said, Hey, we want a business in real estate that we can scale. Um, and so we started learning and becoming interested in the multifamily syndication space. Um, this was about maybe two and a half years ago and um, just the economies of scale it offers. And, you know, not only for us, but the opportunity to pull in other friends and family as investors into um, that investing space. And so uh, we joined a mentorship program a couple years ago and then um, did our first syndication deal maybe a year and a half ago and um, currently just wrapped up our fourth syndication deal. And so that's a little bit about us. You know, we specialize in apartment syndications and then on our kind of our own side on short-term rentals. Right. That makes sense. So, you know, cowboy fan here, you know, I'm, I, I'm not sure whether I'm uh, more of a San Francisco 49er or a cowboy. It's sort of a TV <laughs> Depends if you want to win or not, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what, what it is when I grew when I started watching, I mean, I was in the eighties with the whole uh, Joe Montana and the, yeah. you know what I mean? So the 49ers were a big thing, but then I kind of sort of liked the way the Cowboys were playing in the last little while. I mean, could be better, but I'm not going to say they couldn't be, but I mean, yeah. you, you sort of see when you see that hope and triumph in a team, you, yeah. you kind of get that belief, right? Yeah. And so it kind of won me over. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, well, there's definitely a culture to it that's very appealing for sure. Yeah, and I love the Dallas area. Like I, I like I was saying before we started, like Texas is kind of uh, where I'd like to go. I mean, I'm gonna definitely travel down there. If I were to move, that's exactly where I'd want to move to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a great place. It's not not just for investing, but also a great place to live. You know, very family friendly, very friendly people, um, and great food. That's something that's important to me. So. Yeah, yeah, gotta love it, right? 
So, but going into the investment, so I love how you, you know, you got, you did syndications and joint ventures. Um, you got into uh, Airbnbs for your own yeah. thing. I love the house hacking part. That is phenomenal, right? Yeah. So many people that I've talked to, I mean, I'm an agent uh, and when I talk to people and I give them ideas, like they want this white picket fence home, like detached two story as their first home. And you yeah. know, like, I mean, it's like, Oh, the song for 1.2. Well, I got a budget for 600,000. Great. You're not getting that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, so, and it's like, but I want to live in there. So you give them options and say, you can house hack, right? You know, rent out the upstairs, rent out the downstairs. You can live in the main floor. Well, I'm not living in a house with somebody else. And it's like, okay, well then, great. What type of condo would you like? You know, like, <laughs> right? so it's like, I see it. But then when you see someone who's willing to be realistic and has ideas and has a growth plan, it's kind of refreshing. Yeah, it is. And what's, what's really interesting, I definitely have to kick off with this because I know she's not with us here on the podcast, but you know, my wife and I were, I mean, we're like 50, 50 partners in the investing thing, if you will. And so, you know, our original intention when we start investing was just save our money, albeit very slowly at that time, and just buy a single family home and start renting it because we already owned a modest but nice single family home where we lived after we got married. And um, so then she came to me one day and she's like, hey, I heard about this thing called house hacking and the advantage is you don't have to put a large down payment and we could actually get four units at once. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. But like, that's a huge sacrifice. And she's like, yeah, but like, think about how big we're going to win in the long term if we do this. And so she actually convinced me to do the house hack, believe it or not. Um, and I remember when we moved into the fourplex because it was a big change, you know, not quite as nice a neighborhood, certainly not as nice of, you know, living conditions because this is before it was all renovated. And I remember going to sleep that night and thinking like, if we can make it through this, like we will be successful investing. Like this is the the inflection point, if you will, between us wanting to become investors and being real investors. And so, yeah, it's a sacrifice, but like definitely worth it. No way I'd ever change anything about it. For sure. Now that's the other thing I want to talk about, right? Like it's a lot of people think, you know, oh, I'm going to buy my house. I'm going to live in there, that two-story home. And even if they pull it off, I'm investing in real estate. No, you're living in real estate. Yeah. Now, granted, it is a step above renting, Agreed. And I mean, and I don't mean it in a downplaying negative down talk to somebody who's renting. I don't mean it that way. I mean, it's like you have to live. So when you're living, you're either renting or you're owning. And, and, and the difference Correct. is you're paying somebody's mortgage, whether it's your own or your landlord's. So, yes, I believe you build equity. That's the benefit of owning a home. But that is not your investment, because even if you sell it, where are you going to go? Then I've heard people say, "Oh, well, I downsize and I'll get money back." Yeah, well, I'll tell you something. If a uh, your two story, three thousand square foot home is uh, one million dollar, your downsize is going to be eight hundred thousand. When you calculate fees and transfers and moving whatever, ooh, you got an extra hundred grand. You mean the time you couldn't work an extra two years for that and just not bother? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, let's be honest, right? Like that's not the investment. You know what I mean? It doesn't pay you. You pay it's it. Really, it's back to the, the Robert Kiyosaki thing, right? Investment versus liability. And most of us grow up thinking that our house is an investment, but it's not. It takes money from our pockets every month. And like you said, if you if you leave, where are you going to go? Okay, you're going to downsize. I mean, I don't. when I retire, I don't want to downsize. I want to live my best life when I retire, you know? So, I mean, I guess if that's someone's plan, that's fine. But there's definitely better options out there. For sure. And that, again, you saw the fourplex right away. Like I used to be just like you, the whole single family home kind of thing, right? Like, you know, I'm going to get two or three of them and whatever, but that's a big commitment. 
And what I mean by a big commitment is you, you're starting off, you know, renting out uh, one door. And what if that person doesn't pay? And I can see a lot of people going through that and then being turned off by the whole housing thing, right? Yeah. So it's dangerous, in my opinion. A hundred percent. And we kind of learned that lesson the hard way. So, you know, like I said already, my background's engineering. So before we bought this investment property, you know, I ran the numbers, did the analysis, all that. And I determined we're going to make three to $400 a month of cash flow on this property. Problem is we get into the property and all of a sudden there's all these little maintenance things that the old landlord never took care of that just break one after another, you know, and it's, you know, $50 here, $200 here. $30 here, $400 here. And next thing you know, instead of cash flowing, we're actually probably putting a couple hundred dollars a month into it. And that's when we begin to think, okay, yeah, this is a little disappointing. Like it's not what we were expecting, but like, what can we do? And we looked out our window and we saw the stadium there and we're like, there's people traveling here nonstop. Like first and foremost to obviously events and entertainment type things here in the Arlington area. But then second, like we're in the middle of the Metroplex. And so we are like, let's just convert one unit to short-term rental, Airbnb, and see what it does. Well, lo and behold, it did very well. So we converted the next unit and the next unit. And eventually, we decided we need to move out of here ASAP so we can convert all four units and start doing it. And so long story short, we went from probably negative cash flowing a couple hundred dollars to positively cash flowing like 3000 a month on the building. So it was definitely a lesson in, you know, being creative, being able to think outside the box and, you know, try other things. Yeah, absolutely. And see, look, even with $3,000 cash flow, at the very, very, very worst case scenario, you move out into your own place and somebody else is paying your mortgage. So you're living for free. That is the very worst case scenario, but nobody stops at that. Of course. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a momentum game, right? Once you get the snowball rolling, it just, it just keeps going. And now, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like playing the, with our residential properties. At least it's kind of like playing Monopoly, right? You look for the next good deal, you buy it, you renovate it, and you move on to the next one, you know? So, like, that's that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, for sure. Now, let me ask you something here, which brings a point. Like, why did you choose Airbnb over long-term rentals? And did you consider maybe having a mix, maybe having two floors of long-term sort of for that steady guarantee and two floors for Airbnb? Or is that even more risky than just doing Airbnb for all four? You no, know, those are all great questions. And I wish I could tell you it was extremely well thought out and all that. It, it, I'm not going to say that it was. I mean, it was more just we realized from our bank account that the long-term rental in a C-level property was not really working for us. And we started running on Airbnb and people were wanting to pay us to come. And we said, why not continue? We're making so much more money doing Airbnb. And so we really latched onto that with our residential properties. And currently like all except one house, which is actually ironically the first house that we owned where we lived, um, we do short-term rental with. And a lot of it just centers around the fact that the cash flow is a lot higher and that we have a team built around running that business. And so for us, it makes the most sense to use properties in that manner because that's what we're experts at now. Right. That makes sense. Now, again, how many doors total are you at right now? Yeah. So with the short-term rental stuff specifically, um, we're, we're currently remodeling a duplex we just bought. And I think once those are online, we'll be at right at like 20, I think, with um, eight of those are an apartment that we partnered on, we JV'd on. So we, we have partners on it. Three of them are what's called arbitrage, which is where you rent and then 
re-rent out on Airbnb. And then all the rest are ones that we own personally. So that's interesting. Like, so you rent out properties and then re-rent it. It, it is. Honestly, it's it's a very interesting business model. Um, it used to be way more popular than it is now. With rents having gone up the way that they are, um, you know, especially here in DFW, the last couple of years, it's not as lucrative as what it used to be. It works okay. Um, the thing that I don't like about it is that it's a straight business. In other words, like I'm kind of what you said about paying down someone's mortgage. I'm not paying down my own mortgage. And so now that we really have pretty good cash flow, I'm a lot more focused on buying properties for us. But I mean, I have a few of them. I've tried the model out. I had a few more at one point and, you know, it works okay. So. Right, right. So I get that. Um, yeah, I would have never, I'll be honest. I'm not that creative. I would have never thought of that. Well, I didn't come up with the idea myself. I definitely learned it from other people. But um, but yeah, it is definitely a creative idea. So for sure. Now, going in there, obviously, you described the Burr strategy, which is obviously buy, rent, uh, no, buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat, um, which a lot of people are doing. And it's kind of common. But is there any dangers in using that strategy? Like, like what's the risk in all this? Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, there's probably, there's always risks, right? It's just understanding what they are. I think probably the most important thing in this environment, um, and this would be whether you're doing short-term or long-term, is, you know, when you go to do a refi, because we've refied a couple properties now, um, you know, making sure that you don't over leverage, like we want cash flow from these properties. And so, yeah, it's great to pull money out and have money to invest in other projects, but, you know, you want to do it at a healthy pace. And so, um, you know, we had that fourplex as an example, we refied it last year and were able to pull um, most of what we had originally put in. Mind you, it was not that much because it was an FHA loan, right? But, you know, pull out the money that we had put for closing and then also for the renovation on it. Um, and then that's part of what we used for this duplex we just bought, you know? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of power in the strategy. I think it's just, you know, buying right, uh, obviously refining at the right time. I think that now it's probably going to be a while before we refi anything again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a, a Burr investor per se, even though that's kind of what we're doing, you know? Um, but yeah, it's definitely, you know, the idea of fixing something up letting it appreciate a little and then pulling the money out is definitely a, a solid technique for, you know, gaining, gaining more cash to be able to go buy other properties. Right now, again, like, let's be honest, the market is coming to a shift. Interest rates are flying high, yeah. which I'm sure that's part of the reason that you're not going to do a lot of more refinancing benefit is kind of gone. Right. But uh, aside from that, does that is, does the change in economy and change in the housing make you a little nervous at all? You know, it's a good question. So uh, let me know, I guess is the short answer. I think that, you know, a lot of our customers on our short-term rental, they're people moving here for normal life things. You know, they move here for, because they're coming for jobs or because they need somewhere to stay for wherever their work has them temporarily. And, or, you know, even coming to Cowboys games, I don't care how bad the economy gets. There are still people coming to watch the Cowboys games. Now, Maybe they pay a little bit less potentially, but you know, it's, it's not something that's going to come to an end. And the thing that makes me so confident is when we hit COVID, when COVID hit that Friday at that time, we were living in one of those fourplex units and we were renting out the other three all on Airbnb. I lost 
three months or $30,000 equivalent worth of bookings in less than 48 hours because Airbnb basically came out with a policy and said, everyone that wants to cancel, you can cancel now for free. And so everyone canceled because they didn't want to lose money and they didn't know what was going on. Um, and that was a very scary time, right? Suddenly, like there's zero income on this thing. And so I said, okay, well, what are we going to do once again? What can we do to shift and, you know, make this thing work? And, um, you know, we said, well, are there still people traveling? And we thought, well, there's still construction going on. There's still nurses, you know, there's essential workers is what they were called at that time. Uh, maybe we can market to them. And so we adjusted our pricing strategy to really benefit people that wanted to stay, you know, maybe multiple weeks or even a month at a time. Um, and literally we started pulling in people right away. And I kid you not, we never went under 80% occupancy during the worst part of COVID for several months. And we never went in the red on our PL on any given month during COVID. And so honestly, after going through a worst case scenario like that, I just don't have a lot of fear of the future. I want to be smart. I want to be honest, but like, I'm not super afraid. I think the business model is, you know, very solid. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I asked, right? Because a lot of uh, questions can come up and, you know, let's be honest, the uh, news makes money off of uh, fear mongering. It so, does. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, real estate is one of the safest investments out there. It yeah. doesn't have its moments. I mean, every, every business has its moments, but at the end of the day, as long as you don't have to sell, you're pretty safe. Agreed. And I mean, I, as confident as I feel on the short term, I feel even more so in our multifamily business. So, um, like I said, we just wrapped up our fourth project, um, an apartment complex in, in Tulsa. We own another one there. And, um, you know, we had a lot of investors asking questions about like, is my money safe here? Like with everything going on. And fortunately we had locked in a great interest rate and all that. So that was wonderful. Um, uh, but beyond that, like what, what does the investing environment look like? And I said, well, here's the thing, you know, interest rates are now for a 30 year mortgage on a new house are at an all time high for like the last 10 or 12 years and are continuing to go up. Housing prices are also at an all time high and they may come down a little bit, but they're not going to like be pennies on the dollar or anything like that. So what does that mean for someone that wants to buy a house? It means that the barrier to entry is much higher. And so people who are about ready to buy a house are now stuck renting for an unforeseen amount of time longer. And, you know, that really just increases the demand on apartment rentals. And so I feel extremely confident about the multifamily market in specific, obviously, like always you have to buy right and, um, you know, run your business well, but, you know, we're having no trouble securing tenants. We're pushing higher rents than ever. Um, the business is really solid. And, you know, the question you have to say is if you have what are your alternatives? You know, let it sit in the account and get eaten away by inflation bit by bit or throw it in the stock market and ride the roller coaster. I mean, it's, it's, you, it's easy to just say, well, I don't feel comfortable with this. And then the question is, well, what do you feel comfortable with? Because there's not a lot of good alternatives out there right now, in my opinion. No, I agree with you. I'll be honest. I hate the stock market. I can't stand it. And I'm not saying it's that everybody's going to lose and uh, there's no hope. I mean, I mean, there's opportunity there, but for me, I don't like anything that I have no control over. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And I got a philosophy. If I don't understand it, I don't get involved in it. Very much on the same page. And I mean, the stock market, you know, for, for many people, they throw money in there and over a long time, it goes up. I mean, there's no, now how much, I mean, just depends what you have your money in and all that. But I mean, 
historically the stock market's done well, especially if you're diversified in like mutual funds or index funds, you know, something where you're not, not all your eggs are in one company or, you know, one basket, so to speak. Um, so, you know, I definitely don't bash people for doing that, but I a hundred percent agree with you in real estate. We have control. I don't care how bad the economy is. We can still force appreciation on an apartment, you know, and, you know, people still have a need to live somewhere no matter what. And so, yeah, I, I like the idea of having control over where my money's invested versus, um, you know, someone who I don't know on Wall Street or corporate America controlling it for sure. Exactly. And now here, that, that's, I'm on the same page with you here. Now, to be clear, I'm in. I love residential. I do not like commercial. Now, to clarify this, I love multiplexes and apartment buildings. Now, sure. with that being said, I know that's considered commercial, but I don't see it as commercial, even though legally, technically, apartment buildings are commercial, right? right? So I, I look at it, and when I say I like residential, I mean I like places people live, whether like whether it's a commercial unit or not, as long as it's apartment, it's buildings where people live, there's always a market. Stores will be up and down with the, with the market, with uh, whatever the economy is doing and interest rates. That would affect your store rentals. Those are dangerous, in my opinion. Yeah. I but, mean, you have to look at the asset class. How did it do during, during trying times? How did it do during COVID? How did retail do during COVID? You know, how did office do during office is still not office may never return the way it was because people realize now they can do anything from their home. Like what we're doing, you know, here versus having to go to an office building unless they just want to. So, yeah, I mean, how did things do in 2008? Well, the fact is multifamily, like you said, residential, commercial, I guess you could categorize it as people always had to have a place, always have to have a place to live. Yeah. In 2008, the only people who lost were the people who couldn't carry the mortgages. And that's usually the people living in them, not the ones renting out. Yeah. I 100% agree. So, and, and that's what I love about it. Like, um, and I learned the hard way, like everybody else, right? As we said earlier, with the whole single family home, you rent it out. Ooh, we even have the basement and the upstairs. And I get, ooh, two rents instead of one. Yeah. But uh, it's one of those things that I'm just not a fan. And even qualifications change. Well, I could say in Canada, qualifications change with multi-residential. Once you get, I think it's about six plus and up, it's no longer based on your debt to service ratio, but based on how the asset performs. Correct. Yeah. Same, same here. Five units and up here. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Five units. Five yeah. or six. I knew it was around that area. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> Kind <laughs> of an oddball number, but yeah, you're right. And so, you know, we buy residential still, like I said, we're in the middle of a duplex renovation right now because we're buying in a very strong market. We have a neighborhood specifically that is up and coming, so to speak, and stuff is appreciating there like crazy. So I feel very confident putting my money there. But in general, um, I like commercial multifamily because yes. you can force the appreciation, right? Like when I go renovate this property, I, aside from what the comparables show, if I go put new floors, granite countertops, whatever, yeah, they the comparables may show a little bit of an increase because of that, but it doesn't matter how much income I pull in on that duplex, I don't increase the value of it. I have an eight unit property two blocks away and we were able through the short terminal business model to double the NOI in less than six months on that property. So what does that mean for the value of it? We doubled the value of the property in six months, right? So that's the difference. I'm not going to be able to do that on the duplex and I can on the on the commercial. Yeah, 100%. So again, real estate is a long-term investment. 
I, uh, I know there are people out there that flip and have been successful with it, but we hear the HGTV stories and not the reality. And the reality of it is the majority of people, you know, fail on flips. Um, more people fail than succeed. So again, it's possible. And there are experts that are very good with it and can uh, not time the market, but know the market well enough to know when going in and not going in is right. But uh, for a general purpose investor, they're better off looking at real estate over a 10-year period, which in the average, at least in Canada, is real estate doubles every 10 years. So yeah, we have turbulent times, but the 10 years seems to be the average market where it mm. goes down and up and, and overall ends up doubling. So that's the safest way to play when you invest, invest in, in, in over a 10-year period, and you should be pretty safe regardless of what the market is. Yeah. And and there you go. And at the worst case scenario, you just hold on to it for a little longer. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's you only get hurt on the roller coaster if you jump off. So a hundred percent. So there we go. That's that's the beauty of it, right? And there's a lot of lessons to be there. Now, how like it's not easy to get into this market in the way that um like getting qualified, finding the deals, you know, knowing what areas to invest, because you know, you can pick some pretty rotten apples out there yeah so you know, obviously you're experienced enough to know where the rotten apples are and when the where the uh you know the deals are how did you learn that yeah um so i'll answer that in two parts first on kind of the residential side and then the commercial so um i'm going to say that on the residential side it was definitely a little bit of luck um we just bought in our neighborhood where we lived and obviously everyone knows dallas fort worth and texas is in growing market, you know, you're probably not going to lose if you buy there. And so, you know, we didn't have a lot of big concerns about what we were buying other than just were we overpaying. Um, and we probably were at the time, but, you know, I, I think that on the residential side, it is a little bit trickier because as I mentioned, you can't force the appreciation. So you want to make sure you're buying in a very strong area. Um, on the commercial side, um, which is where I feel I'm actually stronger on knowing, you know, kind of the location and where you want to buy and not buy. Um, a lot of it comes down to some pretty easy metrics, you know, so you look at things like population growth, job growth, um, absorption rates, rent growth, you know, stuff like that, that are, are key indicators that your business, because multifamily is a, an apartment complex is a business, is going to continue to grow. The rents are going to continue to increase. You're going to have demand for them. Um, fortunately, living here, you know, we're surrounded by great markets. You've got you know, Dallas, Austin, Houston, you know, even the tertiary markets in Texas are pretty strong. And then we also invest in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, like I mentioned. So, you know, I have a tremendous amount of confidence in all those markets. Um, and a lot of it's just, I think if you could boil it down to one metric, where are people moving to? Where do they need places to live? And people are moving here to Texas, you know? So um, those are those are probably some of the, the biggest things to think about. Um, I would say on a more on a more local level, like where do you invest in Dallas or where in Tulsa do you invest, you know, stay out of the high crime areas. Um, those are, you know, usually something that you want to avoid and not just, not just the current amount of crime, but which direction is it trending, right? Like, is there, is the crime increasing or is it decreasing? Um, you know, so you, you want to make sure that you're in a good neighborhood, even within a, a particular submarket that you've already qualified as good. Right. Now, how do you find that information out? Yeah, there's a lot of free resources. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the website I always use. It's a, it's actually like a government data website. Um, 
But if you just Google like population growth in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or, um, you know, a median household income, that's another thing that, you know, we look at in multifamily, basically determining like if you're qualifying a tenant and they need to meet the requirement that they make three times what the rent is, do they make three times not only what the current rent is, but what you're trying to push the rents to, you know? And so that's another metric. And I forget what the website's called, but if you just Google median household income, it's one of the first two or three to come up. It's, it's pretty readily available information, you know? Right. Now, how do you, how do you avoid what we call the professional renters, which is basically the guys that, you know, put up a good front, uh, play the good talk, but then once they move in, knowing that it's very difficult to uh, kick them out, they end up getting stuck there. So how do wow, you vet that's people? An outstanding question. Um, so a few answers to that. Um, number one is uh, pick your market. So, um, you know, this is not like a, a political comment or whatever, but some states are more landlord friendly and some states are not. And if you choose a state that is not, then you're going to have to fight a lot harder for your rights as a landlord. So, you know, we live in Texas. We invest here in Texas and Oklahoma. Um, I've also passively invested in Arizona. These are all extremely landlord friendly states. So if a tenant quits paying, you can kick them out in a short matter of time. Um, so that's number one is just have the law on your side. Um, number two is your property management company. So your property manager is arguably your most valuable partner on a multifamily project. And you need to have a great working relationship with them. And you need to be sure if it's the first time you're using them, that they have a strong track record of knowing what they're doing. And part of that would include properly vetting tenants, making sure that the people they're putting in your property are qualified and have you know background checks and references because a tenant doesn't become a good or bad tenant when they move in your property, they have a history that you can follow and look at. And so it's just a matter of doing your due diligence and then being disciplined and sticking to, you know, those, those, pre those would be kind of the two big things I would say, investing where you have landlord friendly laws and having a good property management company on your team. Yeah, which is awesome. And, and that's what I want to bring up because there are different places where you can invest and they're landlord friendly more than uh, renter friendly. Yeah. Um, where I live, it's got to, you got to really vet because it's not landlord friendly at all. Right. So um, it's one of those things that, uh, other than the fact that I know my own backyard, I would tend to want to invest outside of my backyard. Uh, Agreed. And, and some people, you know, they, it's kind of the, one of those, the evil, you know, kind of things, they understand the laws and stuff. And so they're very good at vetting and they make a great business out of it where people like myself are not going to go there. And so that's an advantage. But for me personally, I, I would rather, regardless of where I want to live or vacation or hang out, like I want to invest in a landlord friendly state. Which you also brought up another point here, right? Regardless of where you want to live and stuff. And I think, <clears throat> sorry, too many people, go out there and believe real estate is an emotional business. Yeah. And reality is it's not. It is really comes down to checks and balances and, uh, you know, mathematics. Now, maybe the place you live in is emotional because you're going to want to live there and you're going to have your heart set there. Right. But when it comes to investing, which we already established at the beginning, is the place you don't live in. Yeah. That's just mathematics. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I 100% I, I agree with you. I mean, not to, I guess not to get too concrete, but I will. Um, my wife and I, one of our favorite cities to travel to in the U.S. is San Diego. 
I love San Diego. The food is amazing. The weather is awesome. It's a beautiful place. Um, it's a great place to go vacation. Not yeah. going to invest there. You know, it's, it's too expensive of a price point, not landlord friendly laws, too high of taxes. You know, it's just, it's, it's not an investment friendly area, but I love to go there on vacation. Yeah, exactly. Now that's the other thing you, you brought up another good point there. Too expensive. How do you know at what point do you decide that the investment is just too high? Man, that's a good question. So I, I mean, I ask myself that question every day in the multifamily business. Um, so for, for anyone who's not familiar with multifamily, the basically the value of the returns is determined by the cap rate of the property. Or if you bought the property entirely with cash, how much would you get returned each year? Um, and so to give you an idea, you know, 10% would be a very high cap rate while like 3% would be an extremely low cap rate. Um, and so if you, if you go somewhere like California or whatever, you're definitely in the threes, maybe the twos for all I know. I mean, it's extremely low here in Texas, you know, we're like in the fours now and, you know, a year or two ago we were in the fives. And so it's low, but maybe not very low. And then, you know, you go middle of nowhere, or Midwestern state, you may be eight or nine or 10% or whatever. Um, and so what does that mean? What it means is that one, as you're, as you invest in a market where the cap rates lower, you're going to have a harder time driving for cash flow. Um, you're really going to need to build or increase the rent substantially or something to generate cash flow from your investment. Um, the good news about a low cap rate market is that if you find a property that has a value add opportunity to it, meaning that you know the current landlord's not paying attention and they're not pushing rents, then the lower the cap rate is, the more you increase the value of that property as the income goes up. So for example, if you add a dollar of value to a property in a five cap market, it's one divided by five, which means you increase the value of that property $20. You do that in a four cap market, one over four, you increase it by 25. And so that just kind of shows you, you know, that it, it, it's a give and take, right? Like if you can buy a really sweet deal in California at a two cap or whatever, and, you know, increase the value, that's awesome. But it's kind of that balance between cash flow and being able to add value to the property, I would say. 100%. And that uh, brings up a point. Uh, when I got my realtor's license, I remember I used to hate commercial. Like I still won't sell commercial buildings. Somebody says, help me find a, uh, I, I want to find a new studio or whatever. Uh, not for me. You know what I mean? Like that cap rate thing used to confuse the crap out of me. Like yeah. now as I've been in the business longer and now that I'm into multi-residential and I'm kind of understanding it more. So I kind of get the grasp of it. Right. I still don't like it, but I get the grasp of it at least now. You know, we're talking to somebody. I understand what they're saying and they're not explaining it to me, even though I'm the realtor. You know, like so <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But um and the part that didn't make any sense to me, I'm going to give you an example. Sure. And this is why it's kind of embarrassing on my side, but it's the truth. No, it's it, fair. We're all learning, you know. Yeah. So we'll take a Starbucks, right? You can take a Starbucks, uh, see where it's located, and I'll just say it's, uh, the, the value there is four and a half million bucks. Okay. And all of a sudden, you know, somehow you convince the government to let you get the permits to turn it into a house. Well, you spent four and a half million dollars, forget the construction cost, and now your house is built and it's worth 1.2. So how the hell did that happen? It's the same spot. You know what I mean? Like it's just, and that used to screw my head up. I could not make yeah. the connection, you know? Like, so, and that's why I never liked commercial where now that I understand it, I get it. 
some of it still doesn't make any sense to me in terms of logic, but I get it now at least. Yeah, I 100% agree. And that's one of the things that was challenging for me to wrap my head around when I began learning about commercial because, you know, I just gave a, a very straightforward, concrete example about adding value and stuff with the cap rates. But the truth is when you're doing analysis, it's never that straightforward. It's not just a science, it's also an art. And so what do I mean by that? So let's say that your average C-class property here in Dallas, Texas is selling at a five cap, um, just as an example. So you're like, wow, I just need to find a property that none of the units are renovated and I know I can increase the rents and then I'm going to add the value and I'm going to buy it at this price because it's a five cap. Well, the truth is, if the seller is savvy, which let me tell you, 99.99% of sellers that own a big commercial property are savvy, um, then they are going to realize, hey, this person is buying this at a five cap. They're increasing the rents and then they're going to get a huge return on the back end. So what do they do? They increase the price to where because there's value add opportunity attached to the property, you may be buying at a four cap or a four and a half cap. And so, you know, that's one thing you have to look at is, you know, what is the premium on cap rate that you're paying for those value add opportunities? And if you go in and add those and completely stabilize the property, it's completely upgraded. What is your exit cap rate going to be both from a standpoint of it no longer having value add and from a standpoint of, you know, does the economy change in your, during your holding time to where just, you know, nominally cap rates are higher as well. And so it, it, a little confusing, but that's all stuff that goes into the analysis. It's never as just straightforward as, as what the textbooks say for sure. Yeah, it's true. Now, you obviously said C-class. Um, can you describe the different classes? For those yeah, of course, of course. And so um, basically, it's it's really pretty simple, one of the more simple things. So A is going to be nicer, and D at the bottom is going to be the worst. So A-class is brand new build. I think most people define it as built within the last 10, maybe 15 years, um, you know, in a great location. Um, class can be determined both by vintage of the property and the property's location. Both those go into to account. So, you know, A class is going to be your brand new properties in a great area. B is going to be, you know, your 10 to 25 year old properties and then, you know, very clean crime free area, but maybe not the newest part of town. C is your workforce housing, right? Like, and, and this is where there's really kind of a differentiator because some people say like C plus, which means like it's a good C property or C minus, which means it's probably really a D, but they're just not going to call it that. Um, but C is, you know, your workforce housing, people who quite frankly are probably going to be renters their entire life. Um, and so, you know, it's just a different part of town. There may be some level of crime, hopefully not excessive, but, you know, it's not going to be like your B or A areas. And then D's at the bottom of the rung and it's definitely, you know, like, crime ridden drug dealers live there people don't pay so you get those properties in an extremely discounted price but you know you're going to have a headache every day of the week on them that's true now let me ask you though, though then here's here's my point though because you're obviously focused on c-class why why not go for an a or a b well so maybe maybe i misexplained. i would say that we're we're not necessarily focused on c so i've invested in a b and c properties um i've never invested in a d don't ever plan to because i don't like crime um so c properties i would only invest in what i would consider a c plus property because while it's going to be workforce housing you're going to have a good tenant base you know these are people who you know, they do all kinds of different jobs, construction, maybe mechanics, you know, stuff like that. They're, you know, great people with steady jobs. It's just the income level possibly may not support their ability to 
buy a house in the future. And that's why we call these, you know, um, you know, renters by necessity. Um, so I, I think C-class is great. And what's interesting about it is that, you know, in bad economic times, oftentimes people from B-class will temporarily move to C-class um, in order to cut costs. And so um, I think a C-plus property, they're great for adding value. They're great for cash flow. It's a happy medium. Um, if I had to pick a favorite, it would probably be B-class because it's kind of a happy medium. Like you pay a little bit more upfront for it but very low risk, maybe not as much cash flow, but as far as like a buy and hold long-term, great properties to buy um, and extremely competitive. And then we actually ourselves, we own one syndication and a class, I would call it an A minus because it's about nine years old now, um, but we own one A class property. And quite frankly, the reason we jumped on it is because the pricing that the seller was looking for, it was an off-market property, was very comparable to B class. And so we said, hey, we're getting this at an outstanding price point. We know we're going to have great tenants. The cash flow is okay, not outstanding, but the appreciation and the equity that we're going to have in is tremendous. And you see a lot of people, a lot of sponsors that are gravitating towards those B plus A class um, over the last year, just because the difference in where the cap rates are between A, B, and C has been so compressed the last couple of years. And so you don't pay that much more for an A than a B compared to when you look at it historically, what you would have to. Right. But again, I look at real estate over a long period of time. Absolutely. And I think the last uh, two to two and a half years has been uh, irregular all across the board. And I don't think that was sustainable. And we're starting to see that in this market shift. So and now I think we're going to back what we call somewhat normal, so which is the kind of real estate things you're expecting to see. So I think the A class is going to become you know, unreachable in the way that, uh, you know, value-wise, as you just described. Um, it isn't right this second, but like you said, I think that's where we're going to head to. Um, I'm, I agree with you on everything you said there. I mean, even my own thing, I would look at C plus and be myself. I like the C plus because it's like you said, the common worker, everyday worker. Now, the benefit of that is going to be much more than just the price you buy the place for, but the fact that you're going to have a longer-term tenants and there's going to be less transition as a result. When you get an A-class, you're getting somebody who's, yeah, willing to pay a lot more right now, but market shifts happen. Their job, you know, A-class people end up becoming C-class people because they just lost their job and they just took whatever job or they get into B-class, whichever. So the point is, wherever you're at, there's constant change because uh, their income it fluctuates with the market. So you're okay. constantly looking for new people. Where if you get it somewhere in the C plus, like you said, is it's not low crime or little crime. And more than likely, people are, are going to be there. They're not going to want to constantly move. So it's less uh, transition. Definitely. All great points for sure. Which I love that. That's awesome. Now, that with that being said, so you got into real estate. Did you ever imagine you would have gotten into real estate? Like, I, I don't think anybody at six years old woke up and said, hey, mommy, I'm going to be a real estate investor, right? Or a real estate agent. Nobody. Yeah, well, everyone wishes they would have once they get into it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. No, like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you know, I had an eight-year career as an aerospace engineer, um, and I learned so much from that career. I learned things about people skills, teamwork, leadership, you know, work ethic. Um, certainly as an engineer, you know, you get all the analysis and numbers, which is useful in the real estate world. Um, so I wouldn't trade it for anything, but definitely didn't want to get into real estate any later than what I did. Um, 
So no, I wouldn't have ever imagined it. It was just kind of one of those things I grew up hearing, oh, real estate's a good investment, but like, that's not enough to like pull me into taking action on it. And so um, I really didn't understand why it was important to um, learn and grow yourself and your investing so much until, you know, just a few years ago, for sure. Yeah, which makes sense. And but what what made you like, because I mean, technically, mm-hmm. you can still build your real estate portfolio and still have that job. Of course. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, and that's an interesting point that I make to a lot of newer investors. Um, so I would say that once again, when we started in real estate, it was not like some perfectly you know five year plan laid out. I had no intention when I first bought my f- first few properties of ever leaving my W2 job. It was just I invest in stock market, my 401k, and I also invest in real estate. And that's all there was to it. But as our business continued to grow and I began to learn more, I just realized I enjoyed the entrepreneurship, the aspects of it. So, you know, I get to do things in my own business that I didn't get to do in the corporate world. Like we have multiple employees who work for us and I have the opportunity to watch them grow and their skills and abilities, provide them income for their families um, you know, be a leader to them and help them in whatever it is they're pursuing. Um, to me, that's very rewarding. Um, the the um, I would say the opportunity to help our investors is another big part of my why. You know, I have friends who work in the corporate world and they've done all the right things. They budget and save and put money in their 401k, but they start to get in maybe their 50s and they're like, wow, I'm not sure I'm going to have enough for retirement. Like I don't have a good retirement plan. And so um, you know, real estate is something I can offer them and say, look, we have these assets, they're low risk, they gain equity, they appreciate, they gain value over time, and they spit off cash flow. You know, like even when you go into retirement, you make the right investments, you can live off the cash flow. And so, um, you know, it has a lot of positives to it. We get to help our investors. Um, and I would say finally, and perhaps maybe the biggest reason behind it for me um, was the kind of there's no lid on what you're able to do. So in the corporate role as an engineer, I kind of knew like, well, I'll probably get promoted to this level in two years and probably make about this much money. And, you know, I work really hard. So eventually I'll probably make it to about this level and make this much money. And for me, that eventually became something of like discouragement because I felt like I'm just on this train track that's going this direction and I'll eventually get there, you know? Um, whereas in real estate, like it's a whole open world and there's no lid on what you can accomplish if you're willing to work hard and, you know, work creatively. Right. That makes sense. I get that part. Now, was there ever a point like uh, no business, regardless, low risk or not, is, uh, you know, a straight rise to the top. It's all comes with triumphs and changes. Has there ever been a moment where you thought, Jesus, what have I done? Oh yeah. So many, um, most of them probably revolve around either doing rehabs or working with lenders. One of the two. Um, yeah. You know, when I started in the business, you know, we saved for a long time to get our first house hack. And so I did all the rehabs myself in the beginning while working full time. And I was exhausted. It was like, it was a second job and it was exhausting. And, um, you know, I, I actually grew up working on a farm for a number of years. And so like, I'm someone who's not afraid of hard work, but the idea of like going to college and um, getting an advanced degree and all this, and then having to return to that was definitely something that took like swallowing a humility pill, if you will, and being willing to work through. Um, So that was kind of, you know, it's kind of some scenarios there where, you know, it was like, what have I gotten myself into? And then, 
you know, specifically in multifamily, there's so many balls that you have to juggle, so many things you have to look out for, and not everything goes well. Um, no matter how experienced, you know, how diligent you are, there are challenges you will have to work for. You know, a lender wants more liquidity at the last minute, or, you know, an investor gets scared and pulls out a large investment at the last minute. Like, there can be so many different things that you have to work through, and like, I think that's where the leadership and the tenacity part of it really comes into play is like, it's one of those things that I think there's a, a personality component to it. It's either appealing to you or it's not. And there's also a, a skill component to it where you've either developed where you can work through those things or you can't. And so, um, you know, it's definitely something I talk with about anyone that's looking to start investing in real estate is like, is going active is being an active investor really for you or would you be interested in these other passive opportunities that don't require that skill and you know stress level yeah absolutely that's that's a great answer now it comes to the other thing likewise there's a certain point in anyone's career or business where they have that what i call the aha moment where it's like you know what i'm where i'm supposed to be yeah and even though it wasn't a straight path i think i finally made it i'm losing the anxiety and I was just growth. Yeah. What was yeah. your aha moment? If you've even recognized it, because not everybody recognizes it. Some people just go and don't even realize they've had it. I, I don't know if there's just one, but I, I can name a couple of them. Um, I would say one was when we shifted our, our short-term rental, I mean, our fourplex over to short-term rental. And I went from negative cash flowing to all of a sudden my bank account had money coming in it every day. That was a pretty cool moment. Um, so that was exciting. Um, uh, probably a lot of other ones, uh, center around, you know, when we've refied and gotten huge appraisals in that were, you know, way over what we paid for properties just a couple years before that's exciting. Um, but I would say the biggest, if I had to narrow it down to one is honestly, like when I get up every day, like for me, like I said, I had an outstanding career. I worked for a great company. I have zero complaints or regrets around that, but you know, the last couple of years were really tough for me because I realized what my potential was in real estate, but I just wasn't quite at that point where I could jump ship and go do my own thing yet. And like the fact that I get to wake up every day and like, yeah, there's a lot of things that, you know, demand my time and a lot of stress and stuff like that. But like I control my day, you know, and I control the projects I work on. And so to me, that's just it's just an amazing thing. And, you know, I love it. I wouldn't trade it for the world, you know. Great answer. Love it. Now, I'm going to uh, get down to one last question before I go into what I call a uh, lightning round, which is just some fun questions. Cool. Yeah. So how do you know it's been a successful day? Mm. So let me, let me start by just saying that, like, I think for me right now, one of, and probably every entrepreneur, when, when you get up in the morning, the toughest question you have to answer is like, where is my time best spent for that day? And it's something that I really struggled with. And I would say sometimes now I don't even, a lot of times now I don't even do a perfect job of it. Um, but it comes down to, you know, you may have read the book called The One Thing. What is the most important thing that you can do in that day? And um, I actually just have gotten in the habit over the last six months. I get a note card and I actually just write, you know, you'll see there's just a couple things on here like two, maybe three a day. And I have to get those things done every day. They are the most important thing. And everything else is, you know, maybe something that I tackle after those are done um, or something that I can delegate to someone else. 
And so I've gotten to the point where if I don't get those check marks on those three most important things, it's not a successful day. I didn't do what I was supposed to be doing. And it doesn't mean that I necessarily wasn't working or working hard, but it means that, you know, something urgent came up that took my time away from what was important to something that was urgent that I should have either anticipated ahead of time or I should have had someone that I could have delegated it to to go do it for me. So for me, if I get to the end of the day and I have those check marks, then it's been a good day. Fantastic. Great answer. So now getting into the lightning round, um, just a little fun things like uh, what is your favorite food and why? Oh, that's so hard. Um, you know, I love Tex-Mex. We live in Texas. Um, uh, you know, we have a, a lot of um, Mexican neighbors and we're Texans. We like meat. We like Mexican food. Tex-Mex is probably it. Oh, that's awesome. I've heard about that before. Yeah, you can only get it in Texas, so don't let anyone up in Canada fool you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never had it, but I've heard about it before. All so. right, next time next time you come, we'll go get some. Deal. All right. So, next question is, what is your favorite vacation spot? Ooh, so I never traveled that much until I married my wife. My wife's actually originally from Colombia, and she is a world traveler, like the definition. And so I got my passport when we got married and started traveling and have gotten to travel to, I don't know, probably like 25, 30 countries now. Um, and so it's hard for me to single in on one spot that I really like a lot. Um, but I would say a characteristic of a spot that I like is places where people are very friendly and willing to like share about their culture and their values. So last fall, we actually went to, to France, but not just to Paris, but like around the countryside. Right. Oh my gosh. People in the French countryside, nicest people ever. They have great food, extremely like just friendly, willing to share about themselves. It was awesome. And there's been a lot of places we've been like that, but that's probably one of the most recent ones. Okay. That makes sense. That's a great answer. Now, you said your uh, your wife is Colombian, and how did you meet? Uh, we met at university. We both went to Texas A and M. Okay, uh, that makes I was sense. a senior; she was a freshman, and we became friends. We're friends for several years, and then eventually um, started dating. How did you know she was the one? That's not getting too personal. No, it's not too personal, and it's funny you ask that because, like, for me, I felt like my kind of you know dating life growing up. Um, and I'm not going to answer your question. I hate to break it to you, but I never <laughs> like, you know, whenever I, you know, maybe go out with someone or be interested in someone, I've always had that question of like, is it the right person? But with her, I just legit, I knew, and I've told her, you can ask her whenever you get the chance to talk to her. Like before we went on our first date, I knew I was going to marry her. So like, it, for me, it was just, the dating process was just about convincing her, you know? Right. So, but no idea how I knew that. I don't know that I can answer that question. Well, that was still a pretty good answer, right? Because you just, you know, that's a, that gut yeah. feeling. It's, that's awesome. Yeah, it really was. Um, final question is, second last question, is what is your favorite hobby or thing to do? Oh, yeah. So you may see on the wall behind me, I have a lot of like pictures and medals and stuff. So I've was been an endurance runner for a lot of years and more recently done triathlon. But um, marathon running and triathlon is is basically what I spend all my free time doing. Okay. And the last question is, what is your favorite book or podcast? Oh, wow. That's really hard. Um, probably, probably favorite book. Oh, here's, here's one that I would highly recommend. And it's, it's a little bit off the beaten path. So it's a book called Dream Big by a guy named Bob Goff. And here's why it's such a great book. Um, it's all about 
discovering like what your purpose is in life and how to pursue that. And so, you know, a lot of us, we talk about our passion. People are like, well, I'm not passionate about this. I'm not passionate about that. What does all that mean? Well, Bob really breaks it down well in this book and like talks about like, why are you really here? And like really forces you to think through the details about what's really important in life. So, you know, is your life all about just making money? I'll tell you from my life, that's not what it's about. Although I do want to make good money, um, you know, but how do you live a life of significance, you know? And so I would highly recommend that book to, to anyone. Definitely a great read. And again, that's Dream Big by Bob Goff. Fantastic. And final last question is where do people find you? Yeah. So our uh, multifamily investing company is called Apogee Capital. So in aerospace engineering, Apogee is like the, if you have one body, like say the moon or satellite or whatever, orbiting something else, Apogee is like the furthest point that that object can reach in the orbit. And if you look in the dictionary, the meaning of Apogee is like the pinnacle or climax of something. And so our goal at Apogee Capital is to help our investors reach their financial potential. And so that's what we're all about is helping uh, passive investors reach their potential. And our website is A-P-O-G-E-E-M-F-C, like multifamilycapital.com. And we've got all kinds of resources and podcasts, all sorts of things on there. And then also I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. And so you can definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn, shoot me a message and I'll respond back. Fantastic. I want to say thank you for being on the show. It's been an absolute delight. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate you having me. It's been a great conversation. Absolutely, for sure. And trust me, I can go on for hours. <laughs> it's a great conversation. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. If you like what you saw and you want to see more, subscribe to the link below.